And Father, we uh, just want to thank you for a perfect chapter to prepare us for taking communion, a chapter about the Holy Spirit, a chapter about living and walking in the fullness of the Spirit. So Father, we, uh, we just want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of digging in your word. We pray that you teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, I want you to do a little thought experiment with me as we begin this morning. I wonder how many of you have had this experience where you are listening to a story that somebody is telling you, and that story seems to go on and on and on, and you're wondering when the story is going to be over. And then the person noticing perhaps that you are a little, you know, impatient says, well, to make a long story short, and then how do you feel once they say that? Okay, relief. I know this is not going to go on interminably. Well, my challenge this morning is to make a long story clear. Because John chapter 7 is a very long story. And honestly, I have listened to a lot of uh, podcasts and messages and read a lot of commentaries on this. And most people break up John chapter 7 because there's a lot of great things in there. Jesus has a lot of awesome words in there. But because they break it up, they don't get the full story and they don't get the main idea of the story. And the main idea of the story is a pretty compelling main idea. And here it is. I'll give you the main idea right, right up front. The main idea of the story is this. God loves it when we, in humility, seek the Spirit. God loves that. He loves it when people, in humility, seek after an encounter with the Holy Spirit. That's something that God is really passionate about. Now, why is that the main idea of the story? Because right smack in the middle of John chapter 7, Jesus makes one of his most famous statements. And his statement is, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The way he makes the statement is so shocking and so amazing that it, it clearly draws everything in the chapter into that statement, like almost like a black hole draws matter into itself. That's the central idea in John chapter 7. God loves it when we, in humility, seek the Spirit. What we're going to discover is there's, there's one person in the chapter who is open to the words of Jesus, and his name is Nicodemus. You've met him before. His name is Nicodemus. So here's how we'll look at this. There's three scenes in this story. Scene one is a private home up in Galilee. Scene two is a public venue, the Temple Mount. And scene three is a private office just off of the Temple Mount. Three scenes, one idea, God loves it when we in humility seek the Spirit. Now we begin with scene one, which is a private home up in Galilee, and scene one goes like this. This will be familiar with you because I mentioned this last week. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, that's where Jerusalem was located, down south, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the feast of the Jews was, uh, the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples may see the works that you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. So Jesus' brothers have come 
to Capernaum. And they're hanging out with their brother. Brothers in the ancient world did that just like brothers in the modern world do that. Brothers hang out with each other. Brothers check in with each other. Brothers talk about the family business with each other. Brothers gather. And that's what Jesus' brothers are doing. I don't know for sure where they met, but let's just envision that they met on the roof of Peter's house uh, adjoining the Sea of Galilee. Peter's house was right next to the Sea of Galilee, and many of the houses back then had flat roofs with a wall around those roofs. And here's a picture of how it might have looked, except all those roofs don't have walls. The roofs in Capernaum definitely had walls. And so they would set up a table on the rooftop, and they would have a meal on the rooftop. We know Jesus had four brothers, James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And so these guys, five guys, are hanging out on, most likely, on the roof of Peter's house overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And you can imagine them sitting around a table and talking about all these things, and the wind is blowing, and it's a beautiful, very beautiful scene. And after a dinner of, say, maybe grilled fish and, and olives and grilled vegetables, the brothers get down to business. And the brothers essentially say this, you got to get out of this backwater place, Galilee. You got to get out of this place. You got to go down to Jerusalem. I mean, look, you're famous and getting more famous. If you want to make it to the big time, you got to hightail it down to Jerusalem and start asserting your authority. They're wanting to manage Jesus. You can see the other brothers vigorously nodding in agreement. Maybe James was the one who said it. Um, and now they start telling about their values in verse 5. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They're assuming that Jesus wants to be really famous. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Now they've revealed their core value because the Greek word here for world is cosmos. It does not refer to planet Earth that revolves around the sun. It refers to a system of fallen humanity that drives its values from the evil one. The world is that societal pressure that you feel to conform to a standard. So if the culture values money, you're going to value money. If the culture values fame, you're going to value fame. If the culture values power, you're going to value power. The world is that system of fallen humanity that's everywhere. The United States of America has a brand of the world. Oklahoma has a, a slightly nuanced brand. The city of Bartlesville has another slightly nuanced brand. You can't get away from the world because it is a system of fallen humanity that allows you to get your needs met apart from God. What they're saying to Jesus essentially is, man, you've got to get famous. That's how the world works here in, here in Israel. So you want to be an awesome leader, you've got to go down there and get famous. John adds a little detail, for not even his brothers believed in him. Don't take that the wrong way. They believed he did miracles. They believed his teaching was amazing. They didn't believe he was the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. They, didn't funda they fundamentally didn't understand his mission. They wanted him to be like Jesus, Inc. And if he became Jesus, Inc., they would get the perks along the way. So there they are on the rooftop. 
maybe there's now dessert on the table, you know, fresh dates or something like that. And Jesus answers this. Uh, <clears throat> he says, my time has not yet come. Your time's always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not fully come. The world has its time. That's what the brothers want Jesus to seize. Jesus has his time. Jesus is the one who follows the directives of, of the Father. And the crux of what Jesus is saying is this. The crux is, you guys are of the world. I'm from the Father. I do things in a different way. And if you really want to understand what Jesus is saying is, he says, the way you guys operate is completely without significance relative to the Father. You guys are on the world's standards. There's no significance ultimately there. And the principle is this. When you derive your values from the world system, you remove yourself from what is truly significant. That's, that's the point of this little interaction on the rooftop in Galilee. When you derive your values from this world system, you remove yourself from what is truly significant within the sight of God. Now, what does this mean for us? If we as followers of Christ operate according to the values of the world, we will most likely not seek the Spirit. Why should we? Why should we want to seek the Spirit? If, if our total focus is on the values of this world, why seek the Spirit? What do we need the Spirit for? We're, we've got a pathway that's visual. It's tangible. We know how the world works. If we're going to follow that pathway, why be sensitive to the Spirit? Why do that? Well, we're probably not going to do that. In the year 2018, the world works a certain way. Maybe you can't articulate exactly how the world works, but you get the sense of it. And so you operate according to the world. Uh, maybe in 2018, it's through fame. You realize that you, know, you can be famous today easily, easily. I talked to somebody recently. I think this was actually down in Dallas. They had come up with a video, and the video went viral. It went to 5 million, then 20 million, then 80 million. This guy put together a video in his, in, his, in his house. 80 million views. Instantly famous, he starts a business on the basis of that one video. world works a certain way these days. Uh, it might be through titles or money or highly functioning family, which is good, or substances which are, are bad. The world allows you to find life apart from God. And while I love living in the year 2018, I will tell you that the way the world works these days, one of the primary things about the world is that it distracts you from what is significant. The world distracts you. Don't raise your hands, but how many of you have gotten distracted for an hour or more on YouTube? You see a video? Another one pops up. Ah, that one right there. I'm going to click on that one. Ah, another one pops up. You know what my vulnerability is on YouTube? Sailing videos where the sailors encounter storms. So one, one day I was, I, I, I probably spent 20 minutes. Said, what, what are you doing? 
what are you doing watching these sailing videos where people get into trouble and the sailboat the sailboats sink? It's the, the distraction. The, the world distracts you. That's what Jesus talks about in the parable of the soils. It's just the other things of life that distract you from passion for God. So you're not going to seek the Spirit if your, your focus is on the value system systems of the world. Now we move from scene one to scene two. Scene two is the Temple Mount. And I have to tell you, this scene two is a scene of complete chaos. It's a scene of complete chaos. Verse 10, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. That word muttering is a, a word that is grumble, much grumbling. Grumble is a Greek word that sounds like it's a guttural word. Grumble, 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 grumble. It's a, it's a word that means people are, are there's angst among the people who are talking. Much muttering about him among people. Some said, he's a good man. Others said, no way, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Do you hear the tension? that's going on up there on the Temple Mount at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, let me remind you, refresh your memory about the Feast of Tabernacles. Israel had seven feasts. They all celebrated the things that God did in the past. The Feast of Tabernacles is probably the most prominent one because it's mentioned most often in the Bible. It took place in early October, and it was a very fun holiday because essentially what you did was you camped out with people people that you knew, cousins and friends. If you lived in Jerusalem, you took your tent, you set it up on the roof, and you lived on the roof for a week. If you came in from the countryside, you set up your tent in the fields, and you hung out for a week with your friends. It was a blast to be at the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, and so it celebrated the fact that Israel lived in the wilderness for 40 years and that God sustained them during that 40-year time period. Um, how many people were at this feast? Could, could have been as many as 100,000, maybe 80,000. There was a lot of people at that feast. So um, Jesus comes up after the feast is in process, comes up quietly. And in verse 11, it says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? Where is he? Remember, I mentioned to you several weeks ago about Beatlemania. There's a picture of Beatlemania. Even the cameraman is trying to shake hands with John Lennon, like, come on, man, shake my hand. I took, I, I held the camera for you. You know, Beatlemania was crazy. People were swarming around, around, the, around the Beatles. Um, I'm not saying that the Temple Mount was like Beatlemania for Jesus, but there was a similar ethos up there. Everybody was wondering where he was, and people were divided about him. Now, I'm not going to read to you every incident that took place, but I want to give you seven snapshots of this, seven examples of the chaos in this chapter. Snapshot number one, people feared talking out loud about Jesus. For fear of the Jews, nobody spoke openly. So there's a tension and a fear on the Temple Mount. That guy you saw in the picture back there, he didn't feel the least bit afraid of shaking John's linen hand, or at least trying to, right? People were afraid to talk openly about Jesus. 
people were obsessing over why Jesus was so smart. Verse 15, how does this man have, have learning? Like, he did not go to university. He never studied. How does he know what he knows? The guy's brilliant. People were accusing him of being demon-possessed. Verse 19, you have a demon. Now, in our day, what we would say, that was their way of saying, you are mentally ill. You have a mental illness. You have a serious mental illness. Pal, you have a serious problem. You got a demon. So people are sharply critical of Jesus. Another example of chaos, people are divided over him politically. They're saying, hey, did this, the authorities know uh, that this guy is the Messiah or that he's claiming that? Why is nobody like dealing with this thing? People wonder if he's going go to go into Greece. <laughs> like, wait, what? They're in Jerusalem. So they say, does he intend to go to the Greeks? Like they're thinking, wait, is this, is this guy some like major philosopher who wants to get famous in the philosophical community? This guy needs to go to Athens. Is he going to go to Athens and become famous in Athens? Where's that coming from? People are confused. People are divided over him theologically. Some say, hey, this guy is the prophet, Deuteronomy 18.15. Other people say, no, no, he's the Christ, as if those are two different people. They're divided over Jesus theologically. And then the entire time, Jesus manifests unseen spiritual power. Verse 30, no one laid a hand upon him. His hour had not yet come. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. It almost seems as if there was this invisible field of power around Jesus that prevented people from grabbing him, pulling his arms behind his back, and putting zip ties around him. You know, the, the idea is there's this chaos and there is the supernatural taking place on the same time up there on the Temple Mount. So think about the chaos up there. Very, very chaotic. It's all swirling around Jesus. And then Jesus does something flat out unbelievable, flat out incredible. He does something so radical that if we were there, our jaws would dropped, have dropped in amazement. On the last day of the feast, which would be the day seven, the great day, Jesus stood up and he cried out. When you read the word cried out, just he is yelling this out with a loud voice. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not but yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now I got to tell you what, what happened. On each day of this feast, a water ceremony would take place up there on the Temple Mount. And the water ceremony would take place a little bit like this. You'd start in the Temple Mount, and you would go down to the Pool of Siloam, okay? And the, the map looks like something like this. There's, a, there's the Temple Mount right there in the center. And then the Pool of Siloam is at the base of the city of David in Jerusalem. And the priest would walk down to the Pool of Siloam with his attendants. And there would be a big parade going down there. And one of his assistants would put a golden pitcher into the Pool of Siloam, lift it up, and then they would all walk back up to the Temple Mount, they would get up, uh, up there on the Temple Mount and go into the place where the altar was, and they would pour the water onto the altar. 
And that pouring was like, was like a prayer for God's goodness for the next year. And so while the priest would lift this up, everybody was just quiet. Because this is the time when they would pour this thing out, and it was a big deal. In fact, uh, the Jewish commentary called the Mishnah says, he that has never seen the joy of the water drawing has never seen life. This was a big deal for the Jewish people. This is like Christmas Eve. It's a big deal. This is like Super Bowl Sunday. It's a big deal. A time full of joy. Everybody is very quiet. And Jesus says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. What? Are you kidding? Like, what did the, why did that guy say that? Do you know that at the Masters, there are certain words you can't say? You can't say dilly-dilly at the Masters. If you say dilly-dilly, you will immediately be ejected from the Masters. There's a, there's a list of other words, official words, that will get you instantly ejected from the Masters. Dilly-dilly has been the, the most recent one. You can't say that at the Masters. You can't make a loud statement in the water-pouring ceremony at the Feast of Tab Tabernacles. You can't do that. That is politically incorrect. That is impolite. That is incredibly awkward, but that's what Jesus does. That's what Jesus does. Imagine the front runner of the Masters. He's about ready to putt for the championship. It's a 15-foot putt, long putt, and he's putting. And as he putts, somebody says, if anybody wants golf lessons, let him come to me. I'll make you a champion. Like, that would be so awkward and weird. This was awkward and potentially weird unless you were the son of God and the whole point of the water pouring ceremony is about you and the spirit whom you would give. Then it's not awkward. Then it is the truth. And that's what Jesus does. So what does that exactly does Jesus mean by this? He says, if you come to me, you're going to be transformed on the inside, and you will become a conduit of blessing to others. If you come to me, um, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. Now, it's going to come after, this, after Pentecost, Pentecost, but I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to transform your life radically from the inside, and you're going to become a conduit of blessing to other people. He uses this amazing, amazing picture about a perpetual spring that bubbles up with water. Like inside your life, there's going to be this spring, like a spring of water that's going to bubble up. And not only will it be a spring of water, but it will turn into a river and you will become a riverbed for the Holy Spirit. That's transformation. You're going to become a riverbed so that the Holy Spirit is going to come up into your life and you will be a conduit of blessing to everybody that you come in contact with. Largest spring in America is Big Spring in Missouri. It churns out water into the river that's called the Current River. Uh, the flow coming from the spring is 3,500 gallons per second. That's a lot of water. The water comes out so powerfully it causes white caps. And the water is coming out more and more powerfully every year because the water is wearing down the limestone edges of the 
the, the, of the walls. That's how you're designed to be as a follower of Christ. You're designed to be a source of life, both benefiting you and benefiting others. You say, okay, so what, what's, my, what's my job description as a spirit-filled Christian? What, what is my job description? My job description, number one, is to enjoy life and to be a conduit of that life toward other people. Somebody said, what, what's, your, what's your mission in life? Well, as a spirit-filled believer, my mission is to enjoy life, capital L life, life from God, and to be a conduit of that life for others. That's my job description. Westminster Confession put it a little bit differently. The chief end of man is to, what? Enjoy, glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Your job description is a spirit-filled believer is to enjoy the spirit who is in you and become a conduit of that life toward other people. You know, we talk, talk a lot about grace, about the fact that we have this God-shaped hole inside us, this vacuum, this abyss, and the spirit comes and he fills that up and he makes it run over with life and you then become a conduit toward other people. So you'd expect that a bunch of people would have come to Jesus at that point, right? No. No, because everything devolves back into chaos and conflict. Now, let me, let me pause for a second and talk about what this means for us. There's another way that we stop seeking the Spirit, and that is we can grow doubtful about the supernatural, just like the people did up there on the Temple Mount. Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and the people then bicker and argue over whether Jesus is right or not bickering over whether he can do that and provide the Spirit and give us the supernatural. Not, they, don't say exactly, they don't say it exactly that way. But there's a way you can stop seeking the Spirit, and that is you, you grow doubtful, skeptical about, well, is the Holy Spirit really for me? I know some people believe this way about the Spirit. Some people believe that way about the Spirit. I'm not sure what I believe. And so we descend into a doubtful lethargy of inactivity. And that doubtful lethargy of inactivity means we don't encounter what Jesus promised, the well and the river. You know, in, in every generation, um, prevailing systems, ideas about the supernatural emerge. In the 20th century, people doubted the supernatural. A lot of liberal theologians doubted the supernatural. They demythologized the miracles of the Bible. We don't live in the 20th century anymore. We live in the 21st century. And anybody who was brought up on Frodo Baggins, Harry Potter, Peter Pevensey of the Chronicles of Narnia, etc., etc., oh, we believe in the supernatural. We believe in the supernatural. The 20th century, people didn't believe that. 21st century, everybody believes that because we see it in our entertainment. The problem is that people in the 21st century don't know what kind of supernatural to believe in, you know? The worldview of Star Wars, with all due respect to that wonderful genre, is not a Christian worldview. It's pantheism. The worldview that Jesus is talking here is Christian theism, where you are believing in the infinite personal God who provides you with power to enjoy God and bless others. 
It's a different worldview. I think what Jesus is, is asking us to do is to fully embrace the reality of the Holy Spirit and walk in that reality as a daily discipline. That means we have to have time for the Spirit, right? We've got to make time for the Spirit. A number of years ago, um, more, more than 10 years ago now, I was struggling with how to forge a relationship with my youngest son. And uh, he was a teenager. We were very much at odds about a lot of things, and it was a tough time. We had, it seemed, no common ground except the last name. And so Cindy encouraged me to take him camping at Osage Hills. And I was a little, little nervous about this because, you know, if you're not talking much, then camping highlights the fact you don't have anything to talk about. So we, we brought our bikes up to Osage Hills. We got out our tent. We pitched our tent. We rode our bikes all around the park. We came back. We gathered wood for the fire. We cooked a meal. And Jared is a pretty good question asker. I'm a pretty good question asker. So we slowly begin to ask each other questions. And the questions led to progressively deeper levels of conversation. Fast forward to the next day, we drive back, and he and I are in the den, and we are deep in a conversation, a very unifying conversation. And Cindy comes back in the house, and she says to me later, like, what happened? <laughs> what happened? How did you go from not talking much to being in deep conversation? Uh, that's the beauty of spending time, just spending time, spending time, asking questions, being curious, getting to know my son again. So about 18 months later, I've told you this story before, I'm on the phone with Jared, and Jared finishes the phone call by saying, you know, Dad, I think I, I, think I like you again. Oh, great. <laughs> I think I like you again. Same way with the Holy Spirit. If you're going to walk in the Spirit's power, enjoying Him and being a conduit of His blessing, you have to spend time in His presence. Time where the screens are off, time where the phone is off, time where you're lingering in His presence, communicating with Him. So let me recap. Scene one, private home. Scene two, public place. Scene three, a private office adjacent to the Temple Mount. Just adjacent to the Temple Mount, there was a place called the Antonia Fortress, and that's where the religious and the secular elite would gather during these great big festivals. This was overlooking the Temple Mount. They could look down and make sure there was no craziness going on, and there was lots of craziness going on because Jesus had screwed up the water-pouring ceremony. And everybody was up in arms about it. So the religious authority says, arrest him. Arrest Jesus. Let's, let's deal with this guy once and for all. So who are the people up in that office building? They're, they're the, big, the big shots. They're the big shots. The big religious leaders. So they demanded Jesus' arrest. But the arresting officers come back empty-handed. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, why did you not bring him? Like, what's wrong with you guys? 
We told you to go arrest Jesus. Why didn't you bring him? And the officer said, man, nobody ever spoke like this guy. Now, what do you suppose the response of the religious leaders was? Oh, my gosh, not you too. Seriously, you, you guys have also been deceived by him? These guys are fit to be tied. In fact, in fact, they essentially say, this rabble crowd, they are idiots. They're idiots. They know nothing. They'll follow, they'll follow anybody. And then they, they freak out. They say, wait, wait a second. Have, have, have any of us, like uh, us religious elites, have any of us come to know him as well? And then Nicodemus pipes up. And Nicodemus, the only named person in this chapter who says anything that it makes sense, he says, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? I can't tell you how, how important that is. Look, in the ancient world, there was a style of writing in which an author would create a single voice of reason in a place of chaos. This happens with uh, Virgil's Aeneid. It happens with Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. It happens in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, where Puddleglum is the one voice of reason in the, in the whole underworld. It happens with Frodo at the Council of Elrond, where Frodo says, I'll take the ring. I'll take it to Mount Doom. So there's this genre that's very well known in the ancient world where out of chaos, there's a single voice of reason that cries out to be heard. What John, the gospel writer, has done is he's made Nicodemus that single voice of reason that demands to be heard. And what Nicodemus is saying is this. Let's listen to Jesus. Let's listen to him. Let's listen to him. He caused chaos on the Temple Mount. Let's listen to him. Doesn't our law tell us to do this? He's a single voice of reason on the Temple Mount. Now, the reason why he is so important is because Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. He was the Phil Mickelson of motivational speakers in Israel. He was the LeBron James of preachers in Israel. He was the Aaron Rodgers of teachers in Israel. This guy was listened to and respected by everybody in a single voice of reason is saying, listen to Jesus. He's the one we're supposed to be listening to. So um, now the cultural elites are going to make some really, really dumb statements. They say to Nicodemus, hey, pal, are you from Galilee too? That was a big put down. Are you from Galilee too? They know he wasn't from Galilee. Are you from Galilee too? Big put down. And they say, search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Well, these guys are just wrong. Where was Jonah from? Jonah was from the city of Gath-Hefer in Galilee. Where did Isaiah say the Messiah would, 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 would minister? In Galilee. Um, so these guys not only are, are riled up, but they're wrong about their own history. And Nicodemus is the only named person in this chapter who says what to do. And what he says to do is listen to Jesus. And that's, that's what's important for us. Listen to him about the Holy Spirit and catch a vision for what the Spirit can do. I want to show you a river in South America called, I, I, it's just a hard river to pronounce, 
the Futalufu River. And it's, it's been regularly touted as the most beautiful river in the world. And uh, people say that it, it has the scenery like Alaska. It has rapids like the Colorado. It is the most beautiful river in the entire, entire world. There's, no, there's another picture of it. You know, why does Jesus say you're going to become with the Holy Spirit like a riverbed? He wants us to get a vision for what rivers are like. What he wants to say to us is, I want you to get a picture for what the Spirit could do in you and through you. I want you to get that picture. And the picture is, you can enjoy life with a capital L, life from God, and be a conduit of that life for others. Jesus, in using this picture, is inviting us to dreams. I want you to dream. Um, what would it be like if the people around you saw you as a source of life? What would it be like? Like, what would, that, what, what would that be like if your wife saw you as being a source of life, life from God? What, what, what would that be if your husband saw you as a source of life from God? Like, what would that look like in your family? What would it look like if your kids said, man, mom and dad, like, they're like a source of life. They're like a conduit of blessing, spiritual blessing from us. What would that be like in your family? What would it be like if the people who worked alongside you or worked for you or who are your bosses said, wow, I, this, this employee I have, this boss I have, they are like a source of blessing to our entire office. We, we love it when this, that this person works for us because they are a, a conduit of many, many good things. Jesus is inviting us to dream about what we could be like if we had a continuous relationship with the Holy Spirit. So I want to close with one takeaway, one quick takeaway. The takeaway is listen to Jesus about the life of the Spirit. What does Jesus say? Jesus says he's the one who indwells us. If you know Jesus this morning, he indwells you right now. You don't have to ask for him. He is in you right now. He is the one who is your helper, which means he will be, wants to be, can be the empowering source of your life. He's the spirit of truth, meaning that he can bring you into a relationship with that which is true. He can help you discern truth from error. He can help you appreciate the beauty of truth. He's our comforter. It's another word for helper, helper, comforter, same Greek word, the idea that when I'm in pain, when my tears are flowing, he's the one who brings me serenity and tranquility. He's our guide, meaning when I'm making a decision, I don't know which way to go. He's the one who can give me wisdom about the next path to take. If Nicodemus is our voice of reason, Nicodemus would say, listen to Jesus and what he says about the Spirit. When you listen to him, you think, okay, Jesus, I want you, Spirit, you indwell me. Be my helper. Be my spirit of truth. Be my comforter. Be my guide. Employ these ministries in my life so that I can be the kind of person who enjoys life and who is a blessing to others. So I want to close with a prayer. I want to close with a prayer. And uh, 
I am just going to ask you to pray this out loud with me, <clears throat> but pray it in sort of a subdued, humble way, okay? Um, nobody else has to hear this necessarily, but, but you and the person that you're with. But the prayer goes like this. Let's, pr let's pray it together. Holy Spirit, I humbly ask you to fill me right now. I pray that you would fulfill your water ministry in my life. I pray that I might become a spring of life so that I encounter your joyful blessing. And I pray that this blessing might extend outward so that I am a conduit of joyful blessing to others. I'm going to leave that up there for a while while we, well, for just a second before the, the, the next song. But um, it's important, I think, to pray those kinds of prayers on a regular basis because the Spirit wants to be more powerful in your life than he is now. He wants that. This is what Paul said about communion. He said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So at Grace, we invite you to come as you feel led to the communion table. And if this is your first time here, we dip the bread into the juice. We come kneeling because the kneeling reminds us that we are coming in humility. As you come this morning, I urge you to ask the Spirit to fill you and to be powerful in you. You come as you feel led to the communion table.